Today's reading is Luke 14, 12 to 24. Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table heard him say this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I have just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another one said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will taste of my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. I ran across an article this week that raised the question, which generation is the most distracted by their phones? How many of you think it's teenagers or younger than teenagers? Go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, the rest of you don't want to commit. Um, And it seems logical given the fact that most children in America receive a cell phone before they turn seven years of age. 78% of teens between the ages of 12 and 17 have a a cell phone, according to the Pew Research Center. And with 37% of teenagers owning smartphones, they are what are called digital natives, frequently using Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook. Marketers reveal that teenagers check their cell phones 150 times a day, surfing YouTube videos, checking social media, uploading photos of themselves, all while watching TV or sitting in the same room with their friends. So which generation is most distracted by their phones? Well, in order to answer that question, you have to have a comparison. To to ask that kind of question, obviously it begs a comparison. And what do you find? Well, adults are as addicted, if not more, to technology as teenagers. Here are some findings of a Nielsen survey about which age groups are most distracted by technology during mealtimes. Let that settle in. And what's the result for those of you who listen to a podcast and wondering what everybody's groaning about? The teenagers lead the way in technology-free meals. 
I like this sign. My phone died, so I spent time with the family. They seem like nice people. <laughs> I like that. As one article summarized, whenever you read or hear something about teenagers' obsession with Snapchat, remember to compare it to adults' email addiction. Nearly 60% of adults check their work email on vacation. Guilty as charged. 6% have checked their email while spouses in labor. I thought it was bad watching football while my wife was in labor with her first one, but I didn't have email back then. Another 6% have checked email at a funeral and 10% at a child's school event. That's according to the Priceonomics article. Now you can uh, attend what is now called a, a digital detox. And yes, this is a legitimate, legitimate organization. It's a weekend away without cell phones or computers. And this is in response to the reality that the average person spends 4.7 hours per day on, their, on his or her phone. Now, given the fact that adults have to work, you would think that that number would be skewed by teenagers who are perceived to live on their cell phones. But the opposite is true. The research group Informate found that people aged 25 to 54 spend more time on their phone than teenagers. In other words, adults use their phones more than teenagers. So which generation is most distracted by their phones? <laughs> so I want to talk to you this morning about living today, living in a culture where it's easy to be distracted. All right? I want to talk to you today about living in a culture where it's easy to be distracted. And I'm not simply talking about technology, because there are a whole host of ways to be distracted in our culture. Nor am I saying that there's anything inherently uh, evil or bad in the distractions. For example, it's not, technology is not inherently evil or bad. It's what we do with it, right? It's all about how we use things that can make something evil or bad. But here's my concern based on my observations. I think that distractions keep people from living in the kingdom of God. I think the distractions keep people from living in the kingdom of God. And I raise this to you simply out of wanting the best for people. It's not born out of wanting people to attend church more or to, uh, to serve church programs or to give more money or to engage in, in meaningless religious routines, okay? It has nothing to do with that at all. I happen to be convinced that Jesus offers us the way to live a more fully human life. That he is the way. Now, when I say that, I will also qualify and say, the Bible talks about salvation. And salvation is about rescue. And it's rescue from sin. It's rescue from judgment. It's rescue from from perishing under the weight of your own sin. But it's not just a rescue from something, it's a deliverance to something as well. And when you really dial in on what Jesus talks about again and again, what the scriptures talk about, it's about life. It's about entering into life. Jesus says that he came to give life and life to the full. And I believe that it's possible for us to miss out on that life because of distractions. Jesus is offering us life. He's offering us life in his kingdom, and it's possible to miss that because of distractions. That's basically what I'm trying to tell you today. 
And that's not simply my observation. Jesus touches on it on the, in this parable that he tells. So I'd like to invite you to turn to a Bible, if you would, please. There's a blue one underneath your seat if you didn't bring a Bible with you. But I ask you to look at the Bible. It's really important to look at the Bible. That's page 874 in the blue ones. Page 874, Luke 14. And Jesus tells this story against the background of his offer of the kingdom of God. And for those of you who are new to grace, we're in a series titled Living in God's Kingdom. Uh, The kingdom of God is important for understanding the Bible's storyline. It's also important for understanding Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus launches into the public spotlight by announcing that God's kingdom has arrived in him. Which is really a really audacious claim to make if you understand the trajectory of of the storyline coming out of the Old Testament. What is the kingdom of God? It's the rule of God. It's the governance of God. Okay? And it bookends the Bible story. When you begin in Genesis 1 and 2, you see everything in right relationship. Human beings are in right relationship to God. They're in right relationship to each other, right relationship to themselves, right relationship to the created world. And then when you get to the final book of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, you see the same thing again. All right relationships are restored under the rule, the governance of God. And in between is the problem. And that's why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to make things right, to set things right, to bring heaven and earth back together again under the governance of God, under the rule of God. Because when God is ruling, you do not have things happen like happened overnight. Everything is in right relationship. And there's beauty and there's peace and there's harmony and there's no death and there's no sin, there's no evil. And that's, what, that's the world that God intended. And it's all part of the larger narrative arc that comes from the Bible that says that God loved the world so much that he came into this world in a flesh and blood body in the person of Jesus to offer life to all those who would entrust their, their own lives to him. That's my paraphrase of John 3.16. So the offer of the kingdom comes as an invitation, not by coercion. It's an invitation to live in right relationship to God, which then puts you into right relationship, potentially, into right relationship with everything else. See, to be, in right, to be lined up with God in the right way allows you to then be lined up on the vertical, on the horizontal plane. To be in right relationship to work, to friendships, to marriage, to dating, to sex, to money, to everything that we encounter in life. But he begins with being lined up vertically in right relationship to God that allows you then to live life well at the horizontal level. For those of you who are going through the Bible reading plan, we're in the Bible project, we're in Proverbs, right? Ecclesiastes, right. We went through Proverbs. (laughs) Whoa! (laughs) Usually you don't expect that kind of response. You just got corrected. (laughs) But you're right, it's Ecclesiastes. But I was thinking about Proverbs, so it still fits my illustration. We did go through Proverbs. (laughs) And Ecclesiastes does too, because it's about wisdom. And and when when you look at the wisdom literature, that's where my brain was going, that when you look at the wisdom literature, you see that it's about living life in such a way that, that you're lined up right before God. And when you're lined up right before God, you see it worked out in a lot of spheres of life. And that's what that wisdom literature is all about. 
And so that's what we're being invited into, to be invited into the kingdom of God. And we see this theme of invitation in the parable that Jesus tells. It's a story about an invitation to a banquet. And the story is set against the cultural background of social status. In verses 7 to 11, which we did not have uh, read publicly, there's this background of social status. And before this banquet story ever comes up, there's this issue about where you sit at a banquet. Because... Where you sat in relationship to the host who invited you to the banquet publicly advertised your social status in that culture. Also, invitations to meals were carefully considered to advance your status, not to lower it. And that's why you wouldn't accept an invitation from someone of lower status, because if you went, then it would lower your status by association with that person. The second element in play in this cultural background of this story is in verses 12 to 14, which was read to us. And it's the cultural background of reciprocity. Reciprocity. That means that if you do something for me, I have to do something for you. You see, to accept a dinner invitation obligated you to extend a similar invitation. And that's why you would not accept an invitation from a poor person because... because they couldn't reciprocate. You wouldn't invite a poor person because they couldn't reciprocate. And that's what's in play here in the story that Jesus tells. And in the story, Jesus turns these social conventions of the day upside down to reveal a new way of life, namely life in the kingdom of God. And what's interesting is as you're looking, if you look at verse 15 on down, as your eye is on the text, those listening would probably be lured in by this description of this man who puts on this lavish feet and invites many. Because most of Jesus' listeners would probably think, oh, he's talking about us. Verse 16, but he said to them, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. But the story is really a response to the question of who will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous in verse 14, and who will eat bread in the kingdom, verse 15. And the answer to both is the same. It's those who act like the host in this story. Those who break with the cultural norms of living according to status. Namely, who will make me look good and who can reciprocate? And instead, they embrace a new social order in the kingdom of God that includes the marginalized, the overlooked, the poor, the powerless, the prisoners like Kairos ministers to. And so while I believe that's the main focus of the story in its original context, I want to do that work first and lay that out for you. What I want to focus on in just the few minutes I have left is something else that really caught my attention as I was reading this story afresh. Did you notice the reasons, some translated as excuses, that are given in this text as to why the invitations are declined? Look down at the text again. Let your eye go down and look at the, the various reasons that are given in the story for declining this invitation. And much has been made in the commentaries about it. And it's all been pulled apart, and I'm familiar with all that. And I've preached this multiple times, so I'm really familiar with this stuff. But one of the things, if you just step back and take it just as it's presented as a story, all the excuses, all the reasons for declining the invitation are drawn from everyday life. 
It's about farming. It's about marriage. It's all drawn from everyday life. And it reminds me of the parable of the soils that Jesus told a few chapters before this in Luke 8, where the cares and the worries of the world choke out receptivity to the good news of God's kingdom, to the good news about Jesus. In other words, it's the distractions of life that keep people from responding to Jesus and to his invitation to live in the kingdom of God. And what struck me as I was looking at this afresh was this, this line that Rick Watts, that I heard Rick Watts say years ago as I listened to about everything that he taught up at Regent online. And then when we brought him in, he said it again. And it struck me when he said it again when he was here. And he said this. He says, God will let you say no to him. God will let you say no to him. And every, every time I've heard that, it struck me afresh that God will let you, God will let us say no to him. And you see that in, in Genesis chapter 3 where here's this, this first man and woman and we see this picture of humanity in perfect harmony with God. They have everything, everything. And they're, they're living in right relationship. They have the abundance of everything. There's no fear driven by scarcity, the narrative of scarcity that so drives our culture. And they're living in right relationship to God and with each other and with the created world. And there's one thing that God says, no. One thing. One prohibition. And that becomes a thing that unsettles the entire order of relationship. And what's so amazing is here's a God who loves humanity so much that he creates them in, in, in his image and he places them in this incredible environment and he allows them to say no to him. And you see that in the trajectory of Israel's history as well, where again and again and again, Israel's allowed to say no to God. And Jesus picks it up in this story as well. We see this in Jesus' ministry as well. See, Jesus invites us to respond to his invitation to live in the kingdom of God, but he doesn't coerce us, he doesn't pressure us, he doesn't bully us, and he doesn't shame us into responding. Which means that if you're not feeling that pressure, then it's possible to just miss out on the invitation. Because you don't feel the pressure. And oftentimes that's the only thing we respond to in life is pressure or fear or the possibility of shame. And here's how I think it works. Here's how I think it works. Distractions block our attentiveness to God. Distractions block our attentiveness to God. Last week I spoke about how God is present, how God is, is in this world, and how he's out in front of us, moving in advance of us in the lives of people, uh, wanting to, 
to, to work out his life in people and wanting to use us in people's lives. And I talked about the f- fact of what to, to live in the kingdom is to join God in the neighborhood. That's what it means to live in the kingdom. It's to be aware of the fact that God is already out in front of us and everyone I meet potentially is someone in whom God has already been at work and my role is to be attentive and to join him in the neighborhood, to be aware of where the spirit of God may be at work and how the spirit of God may want to use me to bring the life and the love of Jesus to people's lives. But it requires attentiveness. On my part, it requires attentiveness on our part to discern this. And to be distracted is to be attentive, but it's to other things. See, whenever you're distracted, you're attentive, right? But you're attentive to other things. And Jesus invites us in Matthew 6.33 to seek first the kingdom of God. And if you've heard that a gazillion times, think about it this way. He's inviting us to be attentive to the kingdom of God. Above all else. Seek first, meaning above all else, make the kingdom of God the thing you're most attentive to in life. You see, before you know it, the years are going to pass by, and boy, do they pass by quickly. And you will ask, What did I do with my life? Does any of this fit into a cohesive pattern that has meaning and purpose, or was it just a series of distractions lived out over time? See, we all probably wrestle with some distractions. I think it's probably just part of our human condition in this world. But are you aware of yours? Are you aware of the the, the distractions that you use perhaps to reward yourself? Or to soothe yourself? I think we all engage in some degree of self-soothing. What if those distractions are keeping us from really being attentive to the Spirit? To what it is that He's wanting to invite us into, the partnership that He has for us. At the end of my life, and this has nothing to do with being a pastor, at the end of my life, I would hope that I would be able to look back and see areas where I know that I've been attentive to the Spirit. And those will be great moments of joy. Because I've, I've been attentive to the Spirit of God and to what it is He's inviting me into. It has nothing to do with the fact of whether or not you sin less or you're a really holy person or you read your Bible a lot. But simply because you believe that Jesus is present and He invites you to join Him. That's called grace, friends. It's grace, and we need mega doses of that. We need mega doses of that to believe that God wants to partner with us. Because there are probably 50% of this audience here that doesn't believe that God wants to partner because you're so aware of your shortcomings and your failures. The good news is, He is too, and He's not turned off by them. He moves towards you, and He says, Come. 
partner with me. I've got some great stuff to do in this world, and I want to involve you. But it requires being attentive to me, attentive to the Spirit. So become attentive to those distractions as well. Because what if God is inviting us to this great banquet? What if what he's doing in the world really is like a great banquet that he's inviting us into? And he, what if God has so much more for us? First Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And may God, through his spirit, give us clarity, honesty, discernment and attentiveness to live more fully in his kingdom. Thanks be to God.